Well, good evening. Let's start by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, your, your word is uh, food for our souls, our, our famished souls that uh, need to hear from you. And so we pray that even tonight uh, you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak through your word to your people, Lord, that we might see Christ, see his glory, Lord, and worship him as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always uh, an honor for me to be with you all. I'm just very thankful for uh, your pastor. I'm very thankful for the body here. I'm thankful for the partnership that God has given to our churches. Uh, and so it is, uh, it is a joy for uh, me and my family to uh, be here with you all, fellowship with you all, and, and to participate uh, in this summer series that you guys are doing uh, through the teachings of Jesus. And so as part of that series, I want to look with you tonight at uh, what I think is one of uh, our Lord's most important teachings, uh, one that I think kind of lays the foundation for the rest of his ministry uh, and so I'd invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Lord willing, tonight we are going to cover Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Now, as you're looking in Luke chapter 4, I want you to kind of scan your eyes to the beginning of the chapter. You'll see that the chapter begins with the temptation uh, which you know is also on the heels of his baptism, right? And you kind of scan about halfway up to chapter 3, you'll see his baptism is right there. And, and kind of in the middle is a nice little genealogy thrown in there. Uh, and so on the surface reading, uh, it might seem, it might appear, that this is the very first thing chronologically that happens in Jesus' public ministry after his baptism and his temptation. But that would not be correct uh, one thing that you'll notice if you study this gospel in relation to the other gospels is that uh, Luke doesn't always order his material chronologically. Right? Like first this happened, uh, and then after that this happened, and then after that happened, then this happened. Uh, rather, it's what he himself calls an orderly account, right? If you look all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, this is an orderly account uh, that he has prepared for the purpose of Theophilus having certainty and having assurance. And so sometimes, in order to make a certain point, in order to get a certain point across, uh, Luke will intentionally organize and present narratives out of chronological order. Let me give you an example of this. If you look at the end of chapter 3, uh, look at what he does here with John the Baptist. Look at 3.19 and 20. Uh, we're told that John the Baptist was locked up in prison by Herod. Now look at the very next verse. Verse 21, Jesus is baptized. And we all know that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And so it's not like he gets parole and he gets out and then he baptizes Jesus. No, this is obviously not in chronological order, John must have baptized Jesus before he was put into prison. But Luke presents it in that way for a purpose, right? to close out the story of John the Baptist, which he really has been focusing on for the first three chapters of his gospel, uh, close John the Baptist out, take him off the stage, and now bring Jesus to front 
and center, and he kicks that off with Jesus' baptism. And it seems here that Luke is kind of up to his old tricks. Uh, If you read the other synoptics, if you read Mark and Matthew, you'll see uh, they tend to be more chronologically ordered than Luke. Uh, You'll see that they have this event, uh, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, uh, much later in their Gospels. And so Matthew has this story in chapter 13. Uh, Mark has it in chapter 6 of his Gospel. Uh, There's some debate as to whether this event in Luke 4 is referring to the same event as those accounts, but but there just seems to be too many similarities for them to be different stories. Which means then that, again, Luke has intentionally brought this story out of chronological order to kind of bring it to the very, very beginning of his presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus. Why would he do that? Uh, Surely he has a purpose for doing that. Well, it seems like Luke is bringing this story into this very prominent position in his gospel so that we would pay particularly close attention, especially when you add in the details that Luke adds in. This really highlights what Jesus' ministry is all about. All that to say, as careful readers of the Bible, and we want to be careful readers of the Bible we ought to be paying very close attention to this story because, again, Luke puts it first. And if we understand this story rightly, I think it's going to give us the proper lens through which we're supposed to see the entirety of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so look along in your Bibles. I'm going to read the passage. I'm actually going to start back in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 21. So this is the word that God has for you tonight. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, And all the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We'll start by considering the setting of our passage. Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth. It is the Sabbath day, and he goes into the synagogue. Synagogue, we still have synagogues around today. That's basically a building where Jews from a certain place would gather together to worship. And throughout the week, but especially on the Sabbath day, they would have a service. And what would they do at that service? Well, they would pray. They would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would do a reading from the law. They would do a reading from the prophets. And then someone who was appointed beforehand would get up and preach a sermon from one of the readings. 
And so you can kind of think of it being very similar in a lot of ways to what we would do in our corporate worship gatherings. And so Jesus, remember that he's from Nazareth, right, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And I don't think it's a stretch for us to assume here that this was probably the synagogue that Jesus himself grew up attending. And so you'd imagine that there are some longtime members who maybe watched Jesus in the nursery or uh, taught his children's class or, uh, oh, I remember when he first learned how to read. Right? These are the people that he grew up with. But it's not just that he's the local homegrown kid. Uh, it's also, look at verses 14 and 15, uh, that word has been spreading about him. Right? His reputation is going abroad. By this point, he is very well known in the entire area for his teaching for his ministry, and even for his miracles. We get a sense of that if we look ahead to verse 23. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Like everybody has heard about Jesus by this point. He is the big name celebrity coming back to his small little town of Nazareth. So on this Sabbath day, Jesus is appointed as the preacher. And so he gets up. And he does the reading from the prophets, right? He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, uh, the entire book, all 66 chapters uh, would have been on one scroll. And he unrolls it, and he finds what we would refer to as Isaiah 61. And look again at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He reads the verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And back then, teachers would sit on a, a chair of some sort, and everybody else would kind of sit at the teacher's feet uh, and to listen. Luke is just brilliant how he presents this. Like, as you're reading this, you can just feel, like, the tension in the room. The, the drama is building up. Like, what is he going to say next? The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Like, everybody's leaning in in anticipation. What is he going to say? And they began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I probably said more than that. Uh, He began to say to them, implies that there was a lot more that he said. But that one line from his sermon that day, it might be one of the most significant statements ever made by any man. If you read the Gospel of Luke up to this point, chapters 1 through 3, you'll notice that uh, Luke records a lot of other people testifying about Jesus, right? That's basically what chapters 1 to 3 are about. You got Mary, right, the Magnificat. You've got Zechariah, the the Benedictus. You've got the the angels, right, the multitude of the heavenly host giving praise to God. You've got Simeon, and you've got Anna at the temple. And then chapter 3, you've got John the Baptist testifying to who Jesus is. But now this is finally Jesus himself testifying to who he is and what he's come to do. We've heard from everybody else what they had to say. What does Jesus have to say about who he is? Well, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But at this point, we're kind of like, okay, well, 
what does that even mean? Like, what does it mean that this scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in their hearing? Why is this quoting of this passage so noteworthy and so significant? Well, let's start at the very beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Just real quick, in your Bibles, just scan your eyes back uh, through this kind of previous section right before ours. You're going to see that Luke has gone out of his way to point out that Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Let's start back in chapter 3, look at his baptism. Uh, That's when Jesus is publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit, right, like a dove. Jesus had always in his humanity been filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Even his incarnation is brought about by the Holy Spirit. But at his baptism, there is this visible anointing. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then we're told, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's the temptation narrative And then again, look at chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Like Luke is going out of his way to point out, to emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. Like he has left no doubt in anybody's mind that, well, this prophecy from Isaiah 61, it really has been fulfilled in Jesus. Like there is no doubt that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Like you made that very clear, Luke. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. But friends, the significance of the Holy Spirit being upon Jesus doesn't just end there. Uh, If you've read through your Old Testaments, uh, you will know that there's a bunch of guys in the Old Testament who have been filled with the Holy Spirit or whom the Holy Spirit has come upon. They're set apart from some task, uh, whether it's Joshua or uh, Gideon or David. Jesus is not just another one in that line. He's not identifying himself as, yeah, I'm just like those guys who had the Spirit anointing. No, Jesus here is specifically identifying himself as the one whom Isaiah talks about, the Spirit being upon. Specifically, the Messiah, and remember Messiah is just Hebrew for anointed one. He is declaring himself to be the Spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. So look at Isaiah chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, I know we've got to flip back a little bit to get to Isaiah, but I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Isaiah chapter 11. What spirit-anointed Messiah are we talking about here? Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that's the same spirit anointed Messiah that Isaiah talks about in chapter 42. There he's specifically portrayed as the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So just thinking about the context of the entire book of Isaiah, right? He's reading from Isaiah. And I think back then, right, before they had like Bible apps and 
Bible Gateway, and, and even a single volume, right, with all of the books of the Bible together in one book, like back when individual books were on individual scrolls, I feel like they would have had more appreciation for how a verse fit into the context of the book from which it came. So thinking about the context of the entire book of Isaiah, when Jesus says that Isaiah 61 is talking about him, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, he is declaring himself to be the Spirit-anointed, suffering servant Messiah that Isaiah prophesies about throughout his book. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's who he is. He is the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah. But now we're left with the question, well, what's he come to do? What is he going to do as that Messiah? Well, the answer is in the next five lines of that quote from Isaiah. And so Jesus, through this reference, is going to give us five different pictures of our spiritual condition and how he has come to save us from that hopeless state. So look at picture number one. It's one of poverty. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now the word good news, it's probably a term that most of us are familiar with. Uh, It's the Greek word from which we get uh, evangelize, meaning to preach good news or to bring good tidings. What about the poor? Who is Jesus talking about here? Now, the poor, uh, that might include those who are economically and uh, financially poor. Uh, but good news to the poor, that's not a statement about socioeconomics, uh, class structures, and like fiscal policy, as much as it is a spiritual metaphor. Now, some proponents of uh, like liberation theology Uh, have taken statements like this and made them into, like, specifically uh, and limiting them to just strictly sociological statements. Uh, But clearly, as the next few lines about captivity uh, and blindness will show, these are meant to be metaphorical and symbolic pictures. Uh, We need to remember that Jesus did not come to be a social revolutionary uh, to topple the economic systems of the day. He came to be, Luke 19.10, a savior for the lost. And so here, the poor, that's a picture of our spiritual poverty. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same people that he's talking about here, those who would recognize their spiritual need. Those who recognize that we have no righteousness of our own to bring to a holy God. That we are sinners through and through. We can do absolutely nothing in and of ourselves to please God. Like our best works, our our most honorable deeds, our purest motives are but filthy rags. And our sin has created this massive chasm between us and a holy God that we could never in a million lifetimes atone for our sin. We are hopelessly, helplessly poor because of our sin. But today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? The scripture that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. And that good news is that he, as the spirit-anointed Messiah, 
He has come to save those who realize their spiritual poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy, and will turn to him. And he does this by taking upon himself our spiritual poverty, by taking upon himself our sins, by dying for those sins on the cross, and in exchange, giving us his perfect righteous record. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so the Spirit-anointed Messiah of Isaiah, what does he do? He invites everyone who has realized their spiritual poverty to come to him freely. Isaiah 55, again, staying in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, no spiritual currency at all, spiritually bankrupt, what does Jesus invite that person to do? Come, buy, and eat. Picture number one, sin makes us poor, but Christ proclaims good news to the poor. How about picture number two, one of captivity? You look at the next line, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Uh, That word for captive in the Greek uh, literally means spear captive. And so it is like someone who was taken captive by someone who has a spear. It's a prisoner of war. And that's exactly what we are, metaphorically speaking, before we're saved. It's like Jesus says in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're slaves to sin. Paul picks up on that same imagery. Romans chapter 6, sin makes us obey its passions. 2 Timothy 2.26, we're captured by the devil to do his will. So that's the picture you should have in your minds. Uh, We are spear captives. We're slaves to sin. We're captives of the devil. But again, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That Christ has come to set his people free from their bondage to sin and the devil. Now, interestingly, uh, look at your ESVs. Uh, That word for liberty there, as in proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, it's a Greek word that every other time it's used in the New Testament, the ESV translates it forgiveness. And so literally we could read that proclaim forgiveness to the captives. And we see why that makes so much sense because if it's our sin that's enslaving us, If it's sin that the devil has on us in order to make us his captives, well, then it's only through forgiveness of those sins that we can be set free. A forgiveness of sins that the Spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah has accomplished on our behalf by dying in our place, by taking upon himself the sins of his people, suffering the wrath of God on their behalf. And so Jesus can say, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Listen to how Paul brings us all together in Colossians 1. 
uh, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Sorry, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? And so we've been liberated from our captivity to Satan, the domain of darkness. We've been freed into the kingdom of the son. But how? Well, verse 14 tells us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see that it's through the forgiveness of sins that captives like us have been freed. And so we can sing with Charles Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Uh, we were captives. And how could we be freed? Well, through the gospel. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So picture number two is one of spiritual captivity because of our sin. But Christ proclaims liberty. Picture number three, blindness. Look at the next line. And recovering of sight to the blind. This picture of spiritual blindness, right, it's closely related to the last picture of spiritual captivity because uh, it's at least in part our captor who makes us blind. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, in their case, referring to those who are perishing, the unsaved, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, do we realize that part of what prevents people from being saved is that God allows the devil to blind their minds so that they cannot see the glory of Christ in the gospel? You've probably experienced this yourself. Like you ever say, share the gospel with an unsaved person and you're, you're just imparting spiritual truth and they just don't get it. Or maybe you yourself have firsthand experience. Like you can recall a time when you were unsaved and you had the gospel clearly presented to you, clearly preached to you, but it meant absolutely nothing to you. It was just kind of in one year and out the other. Or maybe this describes you right now. Like you are hearing from God's word about the glories of salvation, what Christ has come to do to save sinners. And all you can think about right now is the things you have to do at work tomorrow. Sin blinds us. The devil blinds us, right? We are unable to see our need for a savior but today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that Jesus has come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, just two verses after that verse I read from 2 Corinthians 4 about the devil blinding the minds of unbelievers. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, a God who is greater than the God of this age, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's another reference to Isaiah, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light 
has shown. And who is that verse in Isaiah 9-2 referring to? You guessed it. It's the spirit-anointed Messiah from the book of Isaiah, Jesus Christ. And so Christ has come as the light of the world, the light that shines into the darkness that those who were once blind might now see. We who were blind to the glory of God, we who were once blind to eternal things, now we have eyes to see. Picture number three, sin makes us blind, but Christ gives us recovery of sight. How about picture number four? It's one of oppression. Look at the next line, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, interestingly, if you look in Isaiah 61, uh, you're not going to find that line. Uh, This is actually a reference to Isaiah 58, verse 6. Uh, It might be Jesus' commentary on the previous line about the blind recovering sight, and so he just inserts it in there. Uh, He might have cited it for another reason entirely. Uh, We don't know. But either way, he quotes it here because this is referring to the person who, because of the effects of sin, they're just crushed. And they're broken in pieces. They are oppressed by the burden, the weight of their sin. This is the picture of sin as that unrelenting, unforgiving, harsh taskmaster who causes nothing but misery and sadness and hopelessness. And really all you have to do to understand this picture is simply live long enough to see the carnage and the destruction that your sin leaves behind. Let me think about the relationships that your sin destroys, the people that your sin hurts, uh, the trust that your sin tears down, the scars that your sin leaves behind, and ultimately the God whom your sin offends, the shame and the condemnation, the guilt. Our sin, our own sin, is the single greatest oppressor of our souls. But today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That Jesus has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Friends, we have a, a wonderful, merciful Savior who is the lifter of our heads, who comforts the downcast, who invites all those who are heavy laden with sin to come to him for rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, he says, my burden is light. And when Jesus takes upon himself the burden of our sin, He removes that unbearable burden that we've been carrying around all our lives. And it's like the picture in Pilgrim's Progress where the burden is loosed off the shoulders of Christian and cast into the depths of the sea. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Picture number four, our sin oppresses us. But Christ has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Which brings us to picture number five. 
One more line. Look at verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this word picture of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor, it's almost like a summary that kind of uh, encapsulates the other four. And it's referring, some, referring to something uh, from the law. And maybe it's one of those laws that you've really never paid any close attention to. Uh, but hopefully, uh, it's something that you will never see in the same way again. I want you to turn back to Leviticus 25. Reading from verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. So picture number five is the picture of jubilee. Uh, The jubilee, in the year of jubilee, according to the law of Moses, according to Leviticus Leviticus 25, uh, all slaves would be set free, all debts would be forgiven and erased, all land would be restored to its rightful owner. And so you see that as a a picture of our salvation that again brings together all the other pictures of the oppressed and the poor and the captives and announces to all of them freedom and forgiveness and liberty. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to proclaim Jubilee, Uh, back in Old Testament Israel, the Jubilee was supposed to be good news to those who were sore oppressed. Like when that horn, when that shofar was blown, that was like music, uh, a glorious sound to the ears of the down and out. Because it meant forgiveness, and it meant freedom, and it meant liberty. Uh, Well, now that fulfillment, uh, that realization of Jubilee has come. The one who has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he declares good news. And this should be a glorious sound to the ears of all who are spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually captive, and spiritually oppressed. Picture number five. Jesus is our jubilee. And so just kind of putting it all together here. Like what what is Jesus saying? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For he is claiming that he, the Spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah, he is here. And he has come to proclaim good news to the spiritually poor, and liberty to the spiritual captives, and a recovering of sight to the spiritually blind, and to set at liberty those who are spiritually oppressed. And all of that is the fulfillment of the law of Jubilee. Jesus now proclaims the year of the Lord's favor to all who would come to him for salvation. So in these word pictures, we see our need for a savior. But here's the key. Here's the one thing that I do not want you to miss tonight. 
all people, all people, as a result of our common descent from Adam, all people are poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Therefore, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like the Bible is clear that all men and all women need a savior. But not all people understand and acknowledge their poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. That is, not all people see their need for a savior. And exhibit A is these very people in Nazareth to whom he is saying all of this. Look at the very next section, verse 22. They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then a, a kind of cognitive dissonance begins to hit them. And, well, we love all this stuff you're saying about the Messiah, but hold on. You're saying that you are the Messiah? You're that Messiah? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And that cognitive dissonance quickly turns into contempt and resentment. Who does he think he is? Joseph's son, acting like he's some kind of big deal. Who does he think he is talking like this? And so what begins as a positive response from the hometown crowd? Well, it quickly turns to them taking great offense. Before you know it, it becomes a full rejection of Jesus. A full rejection of who he claims to be as that spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah. And by the end of the story, they're ready to throw him off a cliff. They're ready to prematurely murder that Messiah. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But let's forget about the people of Nazareth. What about the people of Levittown? What about you? I know most of you. I don't know all of you. I know we're a mixture here of professing Christians and even some of us who would not profess to be Christians. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter which of those categories you claim to belong to. Like if you don't see yourself as the spiritually poor, as the spiritually captive, as the spiritually blind, as the spiritually oppressed, then ironically enough, by your denial, you are proving the very thing that you deny. And even more than that, you are, whether you realize it or not, whether you would openly confess it or not, you are rejecting Jesus. Maybe not as openly as the Nazarenes who were ready to kill him, but you're essentially of the same family because you have heard what he has come to do from his own lips, quoting Isaiah 61. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you're saying, yeah, that's great. But that's not, that's not me. I don't need that. And so there's good news. The good news of Luke chapter 4 is that Jesus has come in perfect fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 61. That Jesus is, even today, June 8th, 2022, saving sinners who are poor and blind and captive and oppressed, granting them forgiveness and righteousness through his substitutionary death on the cross. That today is the day of salvation. 
But again, friends, today is only the day of salvation for those who realize their need for salvation. The good news is only good news for those who rightly see themselves as poor and captive and blind and oppressed. It's like what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. For you say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What does Jesus tell these self-deceived people to do? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Basically, come to me. For those of you who see no need, like you just have justified yourself in your own hearts, you proclaim your own righteousness, this is not for me. Well, nothing but judgment awaits. But those of us who acknowledge our wretched state, uh, realize our hopeless condition, and thus run to the Spirit-anointed Messiah from the book of Isaiah, who has come to save the blind and the poor and the captive sinners like us, the good news, the best news in the world, is that today is the day of salvation, that today you can have your sins forgiven in Christ. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, That spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah, he has come, and he has brought salvation for all of God's people. Father, we thank you for just the depth of your word, that we can look at a passage like this, and we can turn back to the book of Isaiah, and we can see how your son fulfilled perfectly all of those prophecies Oh, Father, how rich your word is. Father, we pray that this would not just have been a transfer of information or uh, just a growth in understanding for understanding's sake, but we pray that your word would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, change our hearts and cause us to grow in our love for you. Father, we pray for those in this room who are not saved. We pray indeed that today would be the day of salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.